we say we're hiking and we we're had, not. We had we had folks from our church and they they we actually took them up there and they said you can't say you're hiking in America. People, when you say hiking in America, has a totally different meaning. Because we started, we would walk down the road and then we get to where you start up the mountain. And when you leave the road, you go up to the top of the first mountain. It's 1,000 foot vertical climb. For 2,000 years, Christ has been extending his kingdom through ordinary, faithful people. Their blood, sweat, and tears are the seeds of the global church. The gospel is spreading across the world, saving sinners, renewing nations, and changing everything. But today, many in the modern church are weak, torn, comfortable. The book of Hebrews says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses watching us from heaven, spurring us on. The stories of these faithful Christ followers who've gone before us are what we need to wake up and return to our first love for Christ's mission. Let's learn from them. On this episode of Cloud of Witnesses, we hear from ABWE missionaries Bill and Debbie Tobias, who share their story of serving in Papua New Guinea for 30 years. This is the first of a two-part series featuring the life and ministry of the Tobias family. We hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm Bill Tobias. I'm a Pennsylvania farm boy. I grew up in uh, Northern Pennsylvania during vacation Bible school. I surrendered my life to the Lord when I was 11. God called me later then to be a missionary to the country of Papua New Guinea. I'm Debbie. <laughs> I'm the city girl. And the country boy took the city girl and took her out of the concrete jungle and took her to the ends of the earth and 25 miles beyond into the real jungle. I was raised in Columbus, Ohio, and we met at Cedarville. We have three daughters and 11 grandkids, and we love it. We went to Papua New Guinea in 1987. Yep, our girls were, Rachel was 12, uh, our middle daughter Jenny was uh, 10, and our youngest daughter Mandy was 8 when we took them to, the, to Papua New Guinea. So I went at the end of November of, of 1987 and served for 30 years in Papua New Guinea, and we returned home in, uh, at the end of 2017. The Tobias's journey into missions began by serving in various ministries before they were invited to ABWE's candidate class. Coming into candidate class, neither Bill nor Debbie had felt called to any specific region or country, so they met with several missionaries from various regions to find an opportunity that would suit both of their individual gifts. So when we met with the people from Papua New Guinea, Joyce and George Goodwin, George did the same thing. Well, Brother Bill, what do you see yourself doing? What, what are your gifts? And he, Bill would go, well, I can do this and I can do this and I can do, oh, Bill, we can use all of that. You've got to come work with us. And before I could say my little, well, what about me? Joyce looked at me and said, what are your gifts and where you see yourself working in Papua New Guinea? And to me, that was ding, ding, ding. You know, that was it. That's and what. She, her answer was, I'm a teacher. And that was it. And then Joyce went off, oh, we need you in Papua New Guinea. You need to, we have literacy training. We train the nationals how to read and write. You can teach at the Bible college. You can <laughs> go to RI in schools. Teach RI in the Christian school. Religious Not a Christian education. school, public schools. And the, and the, yeah, the r religious education in the public schools. So she went on and on. And, and I decided then that's where we, I wanted to go. He, he never decided till we took me three, took me the rest of the three weeks of Canada class to finally decide. And I did 
didn't actually make the decision until we were actually going, walking from the dorm. George and Joyce had come back and they were walking us from the dorm to go meet with the board. And they said, have you decided where you're going to go? And I said, no. <laughs> and they said, well, what are you going to tell the board? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, but just looking at things, I said, Debbie's convinced that I could go anywhere. I feel I could go any country. God could use me anywhere. And he could learn any language because yeah, he's yeah, got well, the IQ yeah. to do that. But. Debbie feels that Papua New Guinea is where that, that God's calling her. And I said, he can't take her without me. So I said, you know, I could go to Papua New Guinea too. So I said, I guess I'll tell the board that we'd, we'd like to go to Papua New Guinea. So that was the decision we made just, you know, minutes before we went and met with the board to tell them where we were going. On this side of Adam's fall, doubts and comparison plague many of us. It's in our sinful nature to question our abilities, our gifts, and whether we're even capable of serving God as he desires at all, even when he calls us to serve him in missions. Debbie opens up about her doubts entering the mission field and shares how God helped her to see that he was going to work through her just as he had planned with the talents he had given her. Got all of our support. We got all the stuff we needed, packed the container, shipped it, uh, working on tickets. And that's when it became real to me. And I decided, Debbie, what are you doing? What have you committed to? When we talked to all these missionaries at the candidate class, they all kept asking Bill for his gifts. And I got to thinking, well, what are my gifts? Well, I am a seamstress, a craft person. You give me a sewing machine and material and say whatever it is you want sewed and I'll sew it, pattern or not. I can cook. I love having people come to the house. I was a teacher, but I, I didn't consider myself that great of a teacher. And I can talk. I can talk about anything, anywhere, whether I know about it or not. So one time she told a pastor, he asked her, it was a real serious situation. You know, he'd asked me, you know, what are your gifts and talents? And so he asked her and she said, I have the gift of gab. He cracked up and it, it lightened the meeting from there on in. So when we arrived in New Guinea and I met all these missionary women, that could do everything and they knew everything and they taught all these classes and they could answer them all with all this biblical stuff and they could give them verses and they rattled off verses. I knew I failed, that, that was it. I just would not be able to do any of this. But for the 30 years we were there, the Lord used every one of those gifts that I didn't think was a gift. And he showed me some other gifts that I didn't even know that I that I had. And when we were in Garoka and starting the church at Kamusi, I got involved in uh, one of the ministries that I did was teaching literacy, teaching the women how to read and write in their own language. And we had several at the, at the village there that I taught. A couple of them were married and were with their husbands at the Bible college. We had one lady that walked over two mountains to come. She walked six hours and she came for a while and then she had to quit. And they said that her husband wouldn't let her come anymore because he was afraid he would, she would learn how to read and write and go to town and leave him. So that, that was a big fear for some of the men. Uh, they were intimidated by their wives learning how to read, but 
basically what they wanted to do was when they be able to bring the song, read the songbook, and also when they came to know the Lord, they wanted to be able to read the verses in the Bible and follow where the pastor is talking. Well, one of the girls that I worked with, and she went to the Bible college also, her name was Miyue. Uh, she and I were very close, very good friends. She was very helpful to me as a, as a new missionary. Well, several years, I think it was even after we moved up to Simbai, we had come back to Goroka to get supplies. Miyue happened to be at the market that day selling some kind of vegetables. I don't even remember what it was. And she said, she told Bill, she said, I want you to tell Debbie and I want you to thank her for teaching me how to read and write. She said, a couple Sundays ago, we had a visitor at our church and we all knew who she was and she was a, a prostitute. And she came and wanted to come into the service and, and Miyue told her, says, now you know, um, this is a church and you're gonna hear the gospel and you can, you're, you're welcome to come in, but it's a church and you know, that's what you're coming for. And she said, yes, yes, I know that. And it was either that Sunday or the next Sunday, she indicated to Miyue she wanted to accept the Lord. So she, Miyue was able to take her Bible and show her in the Bible how to accept Christ. For all my doubting of myself, not thinking that I measured up to all these other missionary women and that God really sent us over there because Bill had all these gifts and he was gonna be great there. I was just gonna, you know, tag along. But it just showed me that God did call me too. And God had a purpose for me to be there. After moving to Papua New Guinea, the Tobiases began by serving at the Garoka Baptist Bible College. And shortly into their service, were asked to assist with a church plant north of Garoka. Bill assisted with pastoring and equipping the nationals for ministry, and Debbie taught men and women in the village how to read and write in their native pidgin language. While this was the beginning of their mission in Papua New Guinea, prior to leaving for the field, God had opened their hearts to the people of the Simbai region. The story about the Simbai area was that some guy had gotten saved and, uh, had a burden for his people when he went around trying to find a missionary. So Bob Dyer was one of the missionaries he contacted and said, we need you to come to our village and uh, share the gospel. And we've got people, four or 500 people that have been saved and need to be baptized. And uh, we don't know how to do that. And he couldn't find a missionary to go. And the, mission, the first missionary that he contacted told him, he said, if you want these people to, to know the Lord, then you need to go. So that's what he did. But he continued find, trying to find another missionary. So the connection was through Bob Dyer. And he said, well, can, can you get us a missionary? And so Bob said, well, he said, I can't go. I'm, I'm busy. I've got to finish this building. I've got to go back to my church in America. They're expecting me back. I said, I'm on a year sabbatical. So they said, can you get us a missionary? And he said, well, that's not really my job. He said, that's God's job. He said, but what I can do is tell your story. So Bob had invited us to, he knew we were going to Papua New Guinea, so he invited us to their missions conference. And uh, he said, you can come to our conference, but on Tuesday night, I want you to come down to the basement and I want to show you some slides of Papua New Guinea. And I mean, we have put together a slide presentation on Papua New Guinea and never been there. And here's a guy who'd been there. So this is a great opportunity. We can learn about, we can learn about Papua New Guinea and, and be more, more informed as we continue our raising support. 
And so he told us the story about these guys that had come out looking for a missionary. And he said, my responsibility, so I, I told them I would tell their story. So I said, I am telling you their story. So he showed us pictures of these, of these guys and some pictures from that area. And he said to us, if God directs you to work with these people, that is fine. If God directs you to do some other ministry when you go to Papua New Guinea, that's fine. He said, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just, I'm fulfilling what I told these guys. I said, I would tell their story. So I'm telling their story. And we fell in love with them just through yeah. the slides. These guys just, you know, smiles on their faces, oh, yeah. uh, happy Christians, uh, but but begging for help. And so then we met a couple of the guys when we got to Bible college. They had been there that year. So they started school. The county year starts in February. They were just finishing their first year when we got there in November that year. And they had eight more students, eight more guys from Simba that they wanted to come out and be pastors at the, train this, at the Bible college to be pastors. Well, at that point, the requirement was that the, an applicant had to have a, a letter of reference from his pastor. And, and these guys, they didn't have any churches. They didn't have any pastors. How did they get a reference letter? So one of the students told the acting administrator at the Bible college, the headmaster, he said, well, why don't you just, I'll take you into Simba. You can meet these guys, find out if they're, if they're worthy to come to Bible college or not. We decided we'd, we'd make a survey tri trip in December, and that was between Christmas and New Year's of 1987. Not me. So I went with I went with this uh, national guy and the Frank acting headmaster Frank Hartley, who was the acting headmaster at the Bible College at the time, and we flew in there in a small plane. And they told us it would be a 45-minute walk down to the church. They didn't have a church in the Senbai Station. It would be 45 minutes. Well, it actually took Frank and I an hour and a half to walk that 45 minutes. And we got down to the church, and that, the name of the church at that point was Second Baptist Church. That was a, at, at Mumbai. That was the second church they had started. The, other, the original church was up at Yomneki, and they wanted, they wanted us to go up to Yomneki. All right, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He said, I said, okay, how long does it take you to go to hike up there? And they said, well, two hours. So I looked at Frank and I said, if we're going, it's going to take us four hours. And it's going to be dark by six o'clock. So if we're going to go, we got to go now. We started up the trail and Frank I couldn't make it. So he went back to, to Mumbai. But I went on up to Yonaki by, by myself with one of the other guys and got to meet some of these guys. And several of them, then I, I stayed up at Yonaki that night and then hiked back out the next morning. And how long did it take you to hike up there? It took me five hours. So, mm -hmm. well, I had already hiked an hour and a half and it took another uh, at least three and a half for four hours to hike up from there. We say we're hiking, and we had, not. we had we had folks from our church, and they they we actually took them up there, and they said, "You can't say you're hiking in America. People, when you say hiking in America, has a totally different meaning." Because we started, we would walk down the road, and then we get to where you start up the mountain, and when you leave the road, you go up to the top of the first mountain. It's one thousand foot vertical climb. Well, and your your feet. I mean, you're. Your hands are where their feet are. I mean, you're just literally going up the mountain and crossing rivers on a log. Crossing, crossing fences, you know. On a, climbing you know, over walk, fences. Walk up a log and climb over fences. So. Or you're going across a mountain where there'd been a landslide and you have just enough room to put one foot in front of the other. So you're leaning on this mountain and as you're putting your feet there, then all these stones are falling down the mountain and it's like, don't look down, don't look down. After scouting the Simbai region and meeting the people that God had previously placed on their heart, Bill and Debbie decided to make the Simbai people their ministry. 
So we decided that those guys were worthy to come out to school. So we invited those eight guys to come out. The, and so they came out at the end of January, became students, and uh, that became our core group of Symbi students. Became the, the best students, and so best workers. God indicated to us that we needed to work with these Symbi guys, and the Symbi ministry would be our ministry. So in 1988, then, we, we actually started the church up at Calusi, but we also made plans, finished our language study. So in 1989, we began an itinerary ministry going into Senbai and getting these pastors together. Now they had started seven churches and every church wanted me to be a pastor. Well, by that time I was in a little better shape so I could, I could get down to Mumbai in about an hour, all right, that first church, and then I could get up to Yomneki three more hours from that, so four hours from start to finish. But then the other churches, another church was on down the road, was another hour down the road. There was a church back around the other side of the valley, which was a two-hour hike back to that. And then there was one church that was way out in the jungle. Uh, it was like a about a, a, probably a six to eight hour hike. And so they, I mean, the churches were just so far apart. There was no way that I could pastor those churches. And there was, I didn't really want to be a pastor. I didn't, I know God called me to be a missionary, but I didn't really want to be a pastor in the sense that I want to train the nationals to be the pastors. And so God orchestrated that to be given. I mean, even if I had had a helicopter, I couldn't go and preach at seven churches. I, I, if the weather was perfect, I couldn't preach at seven churches in, in, in a day. So this orchestrated that I would begin teaching these guys basic Bible doctrines. So in 1989, I would go in on, on a quarterly basis, get these pastors together, these lay pastors and, and guys together, uh, teach them basic Bible doctrines and let them go back and teach these doctrines at their different churches. As our girls graduated from high school in 93, 95, and 97, so that's 10 years we've been in, in PNG in 97, we had a burden. We wanted to move to Senbai, so we had field team meetings and we talked about establishing a mission base in Senbai. And so that's what we wanted to do. We felt that's what God wanted us to do. So basically we had approval from the field council to do that. Uh, we did some number crunching, what's it's going to take. We figured it was going to take $150,000 to build a mission base in Simbai. Um, I'm a carpenter by trade, had done a lot of building, headed up all the building projects in Garoka at the Bible College. Uh, I've lost count of how many buildings I built at the Bible College and, uh, involved in that. With plans to move in place, Bill and Debbie returned to the States on furlough, needing to raise funds for the building of a mission base in Simbai. The Field Council in Papua New Guinea estimated that the cost of the project would be between $100,000 and $150,000, and Bill and Debbie committed to raising $100,000 while on furlough. After 15 months, the Tobiases returned to Papua New Guinea to set their move into motion and had raised $85,000 toward that goal. And in time, the project indeed raised the necessary funds. We moved up there in March of '99. Yes. Uh, and so we had taken a 20-foot container of materials that we had shipped up from up from some of them we'd bought down in, in Lay, shipped it up to Garoka, which is a then was a five-hour trip, and then on up to, to Hagen, to Mount Hagen to the MAF base. So we were gonna move into Senbai. So we had we rented a government house. We had made arrangements <laughs> to rent a house for the government. Now this government house is just a they're a very small house. It's approximately 16 by 25 uh, to 24, something like that. So approximately 400 square feet. To put that in perspective, that's about the size of a two-car garage. So MAF, we had this 20-foot shipping container 
which is eight by eight by twenty by eight eight feet tall. That's a lot of cubic foot of, of stuff. We had a cement mixer. We had the fence posts for to go around the property. The important things. You know, the yeah. bags of cement. Uh, you know, and other stuff that we needed. So we said, here's the priority things we want to move into Senbai, and so take us in, bring in take us in and some of our cargo that we can set up housekeeping and then later bring some of this stuff. Well, they decided that they did that. They took us in, but they said, well, we're not going to. And so they told me while they're there that first trip, he said, we're going to come back with another load today. And I said, I, I, you can't come down. I don't have a place to put it. And he said, well, we got to get this stuff. We don't want this stuff sitting out in Hagen because somebody might break in and mm -hmm. steal it. We want to get it here as fast as possible. So they wound up bringing six loads of cargo in within a matter of two or three days. And so we had to find a place to put all that stuff and keep it safe. So what better safe place is there to put it than the jail? <laughs> So, so we had, put it in the jail. So they had a jail in the Senbai station. And, and they didn't use it. They didn't use it because <laughs> a few years before, the, the crime had gotten so bad in Senbai that the policemen said, we're leaving. And so they pulled up and they pulled up. They ran and the police left. out. <laughs> so the jail wasn't being used for anything. So we were able to put our cargo in the jail, lock it up and keep it safe. But that was the beginning of our adventure. So that was in uh, March of 99. We actually moved into the Senbai. And then we organized a barge trip to ship cargo in by barge. You could go to Medang and ship things from Medang by barge up the Ramu. It would have to go up around the north part of the country and then up the Ramu River, which was a four-day trip. And uh, so we had the barge that was going to come in with cargo. And uh, the first time ever, had rascals, which are criminals, held up the barge. The barge had never been robbed before, but it got, nope. robbed. It got, got robbed, robbed that day. So I'm down in Iowa waiting for the barge to come, and it's not come. It didn't come. So the finally come like two days, you know, two days later, and uh, find out that the rascals had taken over the barge and they stole a drum of gasoline, a drum of kerosene. They stole the radio from the from the barge, and they stole everybody's clothes except their undershorts. Uh, and so. Stole their food and stuff. And yeah, so they, just got, they made them cut the motor off. So they've been drifting back down the river for um, half a day. They locked them in the hole, but the guys knew how to get out. Fortunately, they were, they were able to get out and actually get the ship under control. But they lost, they lost a couple of days at time. The idea was that uh, we would unload that barge. That first barge that came in was unload that barge and haul that cargo up, and we we're going to put it in a in the, what was called the club at the Iom station. And uh, the first thing, the first load, we got the, actually drove the truck off the barge and drove it up the quote unquote road to the Ion, which is a, a real bush track, and getting ready to unload the sawmill. So we had a uh, wood miser sawmill on the back of that truck and uh, going to just lift it off with a knuckle boom, knuckle boom crane and set it on the ground. And while we we're doing that, one of the hydraulic hoses broke on the knuckle boom and I got an oil bath. And that was the first breakdown uh, of the truck. So. We figured it would take two to three days to unload that cargo, and then I had had ridden down on a motorcycle. I was going to ride the motorcycle back to Sendai and then go down and get cargo later. After that breakdown, the first breakdown, the truck actually broke 14 times in 14 days. The brakes on the truck didn't work that good, and uh, that sort of thing. And yeah, you know, there's just all kinds of stories that we. I always figured the truck would be his coffin or yard ornament. Ended up being a yard ornament. As thing. you can, as you can tell, I'm stuck my coffin. I'm, I'm not in it. <laughs> Bill, having endured through 14 days of truck malfunctions while attempting to transport cargo from the barge into storage, had reached the end of his patience. Determined to get home to Simbai to be with his family for Christmas Eve, Bill and his not-so-trustworthy truck had quite the journey.
to get home. When we finally left uh, Iome that first trip after the 14 days, and I think it was the day before I told the Lord, I said, okay, Lord, we're struggling. It was a Friday, and I said, okay, Lord, uh, I'm going home tomorrow, and I'm going back to Sendai tomorrow, and if all this cargo is not off the barge and in storage by then, I'm still going. And the Lord just worked it out that we got all the cargo out of out of the out of the off the ship and and in, into storage that day. And we had actually, uh, I think we had to actually put it on the on the bank and then go back and get it. But anyway, I forget all the details. But I just told the Lord I've been here long enough, and and I was going home the next day because it was New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve. And so that Saturday we actually got in the truck and drove. Well, to drive we had to drive seven miles from my home and go across the Assai River. And the Assai River was in December, it's flooded and it's pretty swift water. You can't get across with a motorbike. So I'd actually had left my motorbike on the other side of the Assai River. I waded across the river and walked that seven miles to Iom to get there to unload the barge to start with. So we drove the truck back over and we drove through the Iom River and, or the Assai River. And uh, it was pretty deep. We had the truck weighs eight tons empty and had about five, six tons of cargo on it. So we're grossing about 14 tons, a big six wheel drive ex army truck and uh, went through the river and we started up the mountain. And as you start up the mountain, shortly after you cross the river, uh, you climb from 500 feet and the, and the road zigzags and switchbacks up around and you get up to 6,500 feet. So you climb 6,000 vertical feet in six miles. That's a thousand foot drop per mile. All right, that's, there's, not, you're not, there's no place on the east coast of the United States that you can do that. You've got to get out and into the Rockies to, to get up 6,000 feet in, in the in six miles. So as we're going up, one of the first corners that I went around, the truck had a, a unique characteristic is that it would not turn as sharp to the left as it would to the right. And so I'm going up the hill, of course, you know, I, I know my brakes are not really good, you know, so I'm kind of keeping that in mind. And I know I'm coming up and I'm turning left and the mountains on my left, and I'm gonna make a left turn to, to make this corner and the, the mountain drops off to the right. So as I, and I just kind of knew that in the back of my mind. And so I pulled up and I can't turn left I, and I can't make the corner. So I, I had to stop. And when I stopped and stepped on the brakes, the truck started rolling backwards. And I've got the wheel turned as sharp as I can to the left because it won't turn anymore. And I think, okay, I've got to keep this wheel turned. We're going backwards, we're rolling backwards and I'm stomping on the brakes. And I said, I said Lord, we can use some help here. And we're going back. And just before we hit the, the bank, the truck actually stopped did not hit the bank that time. So now, okay, the brakes, why did the brakes work? Well, we just came through the river not long ago and I didn't try the brakes, so maybe they were wet. That was the problem, all right? So I don't know if they're gonna work or not. So I said, okay, guys, this is what we're gonna do. You guys take this big stone and I'm gonna pull up there because I just had the wheel turned as sharp as I could to left. I know where I'm gonna come up. I, I'm not gonna make the turn again because I, don't, I can't set up for it. So I said, we're gonna go up there and I'm gonna stop and then you're gonna put a, a stone behind the wheel and I'm gonna try to hold the brakes and we'll see if that works or if it doesn't. And it was a deal like, okay, then if the brakes work a little bit, you kind of roll the stone back and we'll kind of coast back a little at a time and then try to make the corner. Well, we went up there and the brakes worked just fine. It held and I was able to put it in, you know, back up, coast back a little bit and then get it shifted and go on up the mountain. And so that was a pretty uh, hairy experience. 
And then as we got to the top of the mountain, you got to the top of the mountain, you went down to the valley. So you went from 6,500 feet down to 3,500 feet. And there's a place where you cross, it's called the saddle. It's where two ridges, two ridges of mountains come together and a road goes, there's, there's a valley on either side. And this place, the truck is, the, the truck is eight feet wide. The place I got across the saddle is like eight and a half feet wide. All right, and it's not exactly straight. You got to go. You got to do a little, little turn to get through there. So I got one of the guys out to be my spotter. And this this side of the mountain had about a. It was about a, oh probably a sixty degree angle. It was really steep down to my right. Well, this is an army truck from Australia, so I'm sitting on the right seat. All right, and the left the left side went down about a forty five degree angle. So I'm going through there and this, I'm watching them. And so I'm praying, Lord, I said, well, if this, if this truck, the ground's going to break, I hope it breaks to the left so that I can jump out on this side without it running over. Because if it goes that way, there's nowhere to jump. And so with, with gritted teeth and, you know, white knuckles, drove, drove through that and Elijah directed me through that and we got through that just fine. And again, God's protection. And I go back to that where I stomped on the brakes. Like I said before, there's many times I have hit the bank many times uh, when I couldn't stop the truck. Again, God's, God's protection. And one day I was, I was really frustrated about some stuff and, and I was thinking about quitting again. And I said to myself, I don't have to do this. And there was no audible voice. And, and it was like God said to me, or Jesus said, and I didn't have to go to the cross either. Just, just a tremendous reminder that God is in control. He knows everything. He sees everything. And we just have to trust him. Well, in this first look at the Tobiases, we've seen Bill and Debbie's faithfulness to serve the Lord in the faraway parts of the world, including Papua New Guinea. They trusted in him through uncharted territory, following the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. In our next episode, we'll look at the daily life that they had in Simbai, working with the nations, more adventures with this less than trustworthy truck, and also some personal tragedy that they experienced and how they responded. So stay tuned. We'll drop part two, two weeks from today. Cloud of Witnesses is a production of ABWE. I'm your host, Alex Kochman. Our production director is Grant Boring. Our researcher and interviewer is Jay York. Production support is provided by Brian Van Timmeren. Additional voiceovers by Jason Younger. Get equipped to make disciples yourself and learn how you can reach the nations at abwe.org. Cloud of Witnesses is a production of ABWE. ABWE is a global family of ministries reaching more than 80 countries by sharing Christ, planting churches, and training Christian leaders. After nearly 100 years, ABWE is continuing to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can help us advance the kingdom for the next 100 years and beyond by supporting the mission through the Global Gospel Fund. Learn more at abwe.org forward slash cloud.